what are sort of the long-term concerns that folks with traumatic brain injury need to sort of uh, work through. Welcome to the New Jersey Traumatic Brain Injury System Consumer Conference for Persons with Brain Injury. Moving forward, improving emotional, physical, and cognitive health for brain injury. Guest speaker, Dr. Irene Ward presents Exercise After TBI. For more information about Dr. Irene Ward, read her bio in the program notes. This one-day conference provided individuals with brain injury, their caregivers, family, and friends, and healthcare professionals with information and insight into the strategies to successfully manage a range of challenges that affect overall health, wellness, and quality of life. The conference was hosted by the Northern New Jersey Traumatic Brain Injury System, a collaborative effort of Kessler Foundation, Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation, and Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey. The Northern New Jersey Traumatic Brain Injury System is funded by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, National Institute of Disability, Independent Living, and Rehabilitation Research. Grant number H133A120030. This podcast was recorded, produced, and edited by Joan Bank Smith, creative producer for Kessler Foundation, on Friday, September 27, 2019, at the Hotel Westminster, 550 West Mount Pleasant Ave, Livingston, New Jersey. To listen to more conference podcasts, click on the link in the program notes for the playlist. So our next presentation is Exercise After TBI with Irene Ward. Irene is the Clinical Research Coordinator for the Brain Injury Program at Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation and assists with the Northern New Jersey Traumatic Brain Injury Model System. She's a board-certified clinical specialist in neurologic physical therapy. Please join me in welcoming Irene. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for hanging out um, on a Friday here and uh, listening to my talk, or at least hopefully staying through the rest of the talk. Um, so my, to my, my topic is exercise after um, traumatic brain injury, but I wanted to give a little context behind why this topic was selected. Um, so a while ago, uh, through Kessler, we were doing some lectures for, for clinicians to understand exactly what, the, what health promotion was, um, or at least what the role of our, of our professionals were in, in promoting health and disease prevention in individuals with traumatic brain injury. So I, I had to really familiarize myself with the topic because I wasn't quite sure myself exactly what the, you know, what, what the role of physical activity would be in preventing um, disease after a traumatic brain injury. So what I the slides that I have have been modified from like what I presented to the other PTs and OTs and speech therapists and such. Um, but I wanted to share what I found because I think this may be useful information um, for this audience too. It's, I'm very informal in the sense that if you have any questions or if I said something that doesn't make sense, please do let me know. Um, and I, let's see if I can help expand on that. So just also in terms of background, so I, I am a physical therapist. I'm the research coordinator um, for Kessler Rehab's um, brain injury program, and I work very closely with the Kessler Foundation and for this project, the TBI model systems. Um, so you'll see some of the information that I present here are actually based on some of the numbers that we have from the TBI model systems. Um, the other thing is that since I'm a physical therapist, this topic does really... Um, 
sort of resonate with me because of the 18 years that I've been a PT, I've been mainly working in inpatient rehab, and I sort of lose sight of what happens when patients leave inpatient rehab and like the lives they continue on. So the other issue about this topic is like what what are sort of the long-term concerns that folks with traumatic brain injury need to sort of uh, work through? And I think this is again useful even for inpatient rehab so that we set people up for maybe um, more success when they leave rehab. So the primary objectives of, our t- of my talk today is to describe a little bit about what are the importance of physio- physical activity. I suspect people in the audience already know that being active is important. So let me see if I can give you a little bit more detail about that. Um, and also so maybe some strategies in how to promote physical activity in your days. So one of the things that, one of the big sort of like publications or documents that I found in getting a little bit more familiar with this topic was this guideline that came out from the U.S. Um, Department of Health and Human Services. So guidelines are, just a little background on what a guideline is, it's usually, uh, it's usually developed by a, like a large group of people who specialize in a certain area, maybe in a few different areas, but have this common theme. And they look at all the literature and all the research and they try to develop uh, recommendations, in this case for the public. Um, and the guideline here is saying that all Americans should engage in regular physical activity to improve, to improve overall health and fitness and to prevent negative health outcomes. They, there's a lot that they say in this large document. It's like probably close to 100 pages, but I thought that that was important, sort of like a statement of purpose, right? We, we should all engage. Um, so it's not maybe a matter of convenience, but we really have to figure out how do we get physical activity in above and beyond what we're already doing during the day. The next important sort of quote from there I thought was the benefits of physical activity occur in generally healthy people of of all ages and in people at risk of developing chronic diseases and in people with chronic conditions or disabilities. And I think that was more of a recent addition from their, so this is a revised document. They had an original one done a few years ago. And they said that that they really added that people with chronic health conditions and disabilities need to be considered into the plans or the master plan of how we, can, how we think about physical activity during the day. So that's sort of the big piece there. There's a cost to inactivity. There's a financial cost and there's a health cost, right? So the financial cost, just because numbers are sometimes interesting, is about $117 billion in annual health care costs and about 10% of premature mortality are associated with inadequate physical activity. So that just sort of is a sort of a big number, but I'm more focused on the the other sort of health cost of of inactivity. The other piece to this is, and, and a lot of that document is focused around sort of the general population, but specific to TBI, a couple of years ago, back in 2010, and since then, people have really started thinking about TBI as its own uh, chronic health disease, sort of similar to like diabetes, right? Where it's not sort of a one event situation that you need to then you know, and then you sort of continue on. I think that this audience knows that that's not true, right? There are things that come up in the years that follow, in the days that follow. So people outside of this group that knows this is bringing to really understand, or at least trying to ask the questions like, what does that mean to have a chronic condition like TBI, and how does that affect health? So they're finding, so basically, sort of the, the, the ideas that I pulled from this article are really that there's a link to medical conditions, Um, that arise over the course of the lifespan of somebody with a traumatic brain injury that are probably, if not a direct result of the TBI, but also maybe a result of some of the consequences like inactivity resulting in some other health conditions like, uh, and we'll kind of go through a list, but like cardiovascular disease and diabetes. And that medical professional, so if you, when you go to a medical professional, they should, re, they should view any of your ailments or any of your sort of questions or concerns through the lens of traumatic brain injury to see how does this all sort of connect. Um, 
So that's, I, think, I think that's also an important point, is to know that there's sort of this other piece out there that maybe um, that we have to be aware of. So what do we mean by physical activity? It's really any body movement. So they're not really being specific to exercise, where it's more of a planned activity, where it's structured around a certain amount of repetitions, maybe a certain weight program or things like that. But physical activity really kind of means things that you during the, do during the day, whether it's a more rigorous activity of daily living, like they consider house cleaning, stairs, things like that, like just things of just maintaining your day as being activity or like an exercise program. So physical activity, when I, you know, as I'm mentioning physical activity during the talk, it really is any kind of body movement that you get to do to be a little bit more active. So the health benefits of physical activity. So, the, so there was a nice long list through this, um, this guideline that talked about how overall in the general population that the benefits of physical activity um, result in a reduced mortality rate a reduced heart disease, a rate of heart disease, reduced rate of blood clots, and reduced certain cancers. And they actually expanded this list a little bit this time to say it included, they found evidence of reduced risk for bladder cancer, breast, colon, endometrium, esophagus, kidney, lung, and stomach cancers. They also found that there's a reduction in non-insulin-dependent diabetes mellitus, so that's just the diabetes that you typically hear about, but that means um, that just with activity that you could reduce that risk and improved bone health. And wh why I want to stop there for a second a little bit is because we've also heard about osteoporosis or osteopenia, which is kind of like that pre-symptom before osteoporosis where your bones start to lose density, part of aging, but also can be accelerated with inactivity. But activity, strengthening exercises kind of help build up bone health. And as a physical therapist, when I think of you know a patient or somebody I'm working with, I think about that possibility of falls and also fractures. So these things sometimes link together. So not only does activity help reduce some of those other things, but also can help improve bone health should something um, happen. There's also overall improved physical function, improved quality of life, uh, reduced anxiety. So people have re reported reduced anxiety with, uh, with physical activity, reduced risk of depression, probably improved sleep, lower risk of fall, so that's that going back to that bone density thing that we kind of care about, but uh, lower risk of fall, especially for the older adults, and we saw that there's a little bit of a, um, an increase in, in, in older adults falling and resulting in brain injury. So uh, again, we're sort of like looking at these groups and saying, what can we do better in terms of helping people stay more balanced, healthier, and active? So lower risk of fall-related injuries um, also. We do have to pause in all that risk and benefit and talk specifically about obesity in the United States just because this number is, is, was surprising to see that 39.8% of the U.S. population are, are considered um, obese. So, um, and that has a cost, um, not only a, a health cost and a financial cost. So the estimated annual medical cost for people who have obesity was about $1,429 a year, more than somebody who's in a normal weight, weight range. So there is sort of this additional medical sort of stuff that gets triggered just um, because of body weight, necessarily. So what you've often probably heard, maybe in the news on, and on reports and maybe in, in hearing from your physician, is that they're always looking at body mass index, so that phrase of BMI or body mass index. And that's like the relation of how, much, how, how tall you are to how much uh, you weigh. So in terms of categories, um, you know, these are just sort of the categories. So this is more of like a pause to see that if you're monitoring BMI or if your physician's talking to you about BMI, 
The normal weight BMI is about 18.5 to about to less than 25, and that's considered normal. There is a time, though, when underweight is also considered is also not good, right? So lighter isn't always better. There is sort of like a sweet spot when it comes to weight, um, and that uh, lighter is not better. And, and actually, this comes up. Um, I, I did sort of pull this, uh, from this from the slides, but I'm going to say it anyway, is that there's a time when people come into our hospital when they're in such a, like a, what they call a high metabolic state, right, where they made, made, may have weighed a certain amount when they came into the hospital, but because their body is going through such a, a rapid rate of recovery or shock that they start to lose weight. And that's what we really care about, too, is we start to increase their calorie intake um, to make sure that they stay a certain weight. So weight does get linked to health in a couple of different ways. There's the ideal... Uh, weight to make sure that they continue, you continue to have the energy and strength to heal. And then there's a, the possibility of being a little bit too, too overweight in the sense that it may trigger other health concerns. And diabetes and cardiovascular disease is one of the things that come to mind. In terms of traumatic brain injury, there is a pattern of weight change that does happen, apparently, that's been reported. Um, about 42% significantly gained weight after their injury within, like, months to years after. Um, but there's a group that does stay about the same, and there's also a group that um, lost weight. What was interesting in this particular study is that 16% developed... Um, like what they call metabolic diseases, like arterial hypertension, dyslipidemia, which is basically high, you know high cholesterol or type two diabetes. And what what was interesting about that is that that can happen in like the general population of of people. But this particular group, their average age was thirty six. So this was a younger group of people that suddenly developed these um, these metabolic um, these metabolic uh, uh, diseases. So weight control. And this is sort of the, the downside of my presentation. I don't have a lot of great answers, so I'm going to bring up a lot of like, uh, thoughts. But the research hasn't really given us a clear path as to how to make this even more accessible and better. So I think we'll get to those slides, too. But for weight loss, what they found is that with proper nutrition and, and weight loss, that physical this can be achieved through physical activity. Also, physical activity in general will prevent or slow weight gain. So, again, sort of part of that solution is physical activity, um, but it is coupled with other things, not just in isolation like um, nutrition. So, the benefits of uh, regular physical activity specific to TBI continue in that we talk about how there are cer certain studies that specifically looked at depression. So, it lowered the levels of depression in certain populations. Better, people were reporting better general health overall and higher self-efficacy and better quality of life with physical activity. So again, that physical activity piece is not necessarily a structured exercise program. You can certainly go that route, but it's about doing a little bit more above than what you normally do, and it can be things that you typically do in the household. So these numbers I wanted to put out there just because it gives a little bit of a guideline about what we mean about physical activity in terms of numbers. So they're saying that in general, people need to commit to 150 to 300 minutes a week of moderate intensity physical activity. So moderate intensity can be measured by, they say simply by saying, if you can, you should be able to talk, not easily, but talk while you're doing it, right? So you, you have enough breath to be able to talk. But vigorous activity, so if you go up a little further and vigorous activity is about 75 minutes to 150 minutes a week of vigorous intensity activity. And that's when you're doing something so with so much effort that it's hard to speak. So that's sort of the gauge on that. 
And then in terms of like, you know, I mentioned that you can do things that maybe that you, that are sort of in your household. They're saying stairs, for example, is considered generally for most people a vigorous activity. You go up a flight of stairs, you may feel winded. That's considered a vigorous activity. Um, other things like, you know, I, I thought this was kind of an example for a seasonal thing, but they're saying raking leaves is considered more of a moderate activity. Kind of depends on how many leaves I think are out there. But there's, there's some guidelines as to like how to think about maybe incorporating this in your day. So the other thing is, you know, this is, these are just, you know, a, sort of a, a slide with a lot of numbers, but it kind of drives home the point of like, where is the, gen the general population, just the slide that I um, had, uh, that I also took out just to kind of keep the story going, but I'm going to talk about anyway, is that the general population is about 20% compliant with that. So in general, people are not able to fit this in for a lot of, and, there's, and it's, it's never an easy solution, but in general, right now, people are about 20% compliant with getting those, of hitting that moderate level and that vigorous level of exercise. In terms of physical, uh, in terms of uh, traumatic brain injury, it's even lower. So here are some numbers on how people looked at that, mainly through self-report, but one study did use like an activity monitor, monitor to see how much, how many steps a day people were taking. But in general, what this, what this table sort of shows you, I, I, or all these numbers kind of represent is that in general people are below, if they had a, a comparison against maybe sort of like the general population, are below the general population, um, and there's probably some really good reasons why. I'm, I'm going to give a little bit of information because I was curious about, well, well, a lot of this has to do with like, you know, a lot of the examples I was seeing was had to do with walking. Um, and walking as being a solution for physical activity. So a while back, you know, we were kind of interested in physical therapists, walking. It's kind of like, you know, we're sort of known for that. So we want, I wanted to go into the database, and, I, you know, so there was a few of us that looked at it um, in terms of our model systems database. So that's all the data that gets collected from everybody who participates in the um, traumatic brain injury model systems at, um, through this center. And we wanted to see exactly what was the mobility like for people while they're in rehabilitation, and then when you're post, and how does that sort of impact things? So there were a couple things we looked at, but I wanted to focus on, uh, and that describes that, on um, the results of it. But just to give a little background, we looked at 245 people. They were generally between the moderate to severe category of traumatic brain injury, and the age range was really between 16 and 92, so it really did have a range of people in there. In general, people were staying in, our, um, in the hospital for just over two weeks, and they stayed with us at uh, the rehab center for about uh, 24 to 25 days. So what these little pies represent is like on the far, I guess, left over there, um, what, did they, what did people look like in terms of walking ability when they first came to rehabilitation? So it's probably no surprise when you think about it that most of the people that came to rehab needed help. In fact, they were dependent on somebody to help them walk. So that's 100%. By the time they were discharged, and you know, on average, 24 to 25 days, they, most of them, so you start to see a little less blue and some green, right? So that blue is representing still that need for assistance, like physical assistance, versus the green representing independent. So maybe they were walking on their own with or without a device. So at, at discharge, about 61% of the people still needed help, but as many as like 39% were without assistance, physical assistance to walk. So that was encouraging. But at one year, what's going on? So at one year, post-injury, we wanted to see how many people were walking and how, how they were walking. And we saw that 85% of the people were walking now independently. Really encouraging to see. But that 15% were still needing some assistance. And also in that 15%, we saw that people had backslid, meaning maybe they were at a certain level 
at discharge, but in a year they needed more help. So that I thought was really also interesting in the sense that there is a there is a there are a, there's a group of people that are needing help in a way that they start to maybe maybe they start to walk less. Not that that is the biggest indicator, but that's an indicator of something, especially when we look at other things like of the people that were in that 15%, 94.4%, so about, you know, 94% did not leave their home on a daily basis. So they really need so much of that help of getting out was really dependent on somebody else, so much so that maybe, maybe they couldn't leave their home on a regular basis. And then I think of that in terms of physical activity, too. It's like, what are our options for in-home exercise and things like that? Um, and then 52 to 53%, let's say, showed a decline in walking. That's what I was saying. It's like, of that 15%, part of that group is people that were at a higher level but had sort of like backslid in their function. And you're always thinking that there's this trajectory of improvement. You're hoping that, but sometimes for some, group, for some groups there isn't. So what can we do to help, help that? So community ambulation, the other thing we were sort of looking at, are of the people who are walking, right, so that's like a gross measure of like, okay, they're walking, is that the end all, be all? So we did have this other study, and I just wanted to look at, take a peek at the numbers to see, of the people sort of out in the community who aren't needing any physical assistance, what are their average steps per day? And we saw that on average it was about 2,000 to 3,000 steps a day. And where does that rank in terms of what's considered active? 10,000 is the benchmark for active. So way below that. Again, so more in that actually less, they're sort of falling in that sedentary category. So physical assistance isn't the end all be all in terms of understanding how much, how active somebody is and probably not the number of steps, but it's giving us a clearer picture of the people that we serve in terms of like where they are in their activity level. So barriers, you know, I, I'm sure we can come up with a nice long list of really barriers because the point of barriers is that it's, it's very specific to the individual. So this list represents some of the things. Poor mobility is one of them, right? So if you're having a hard time getting around, it's gonna be harder to be more active. Pain, fatigue in general, and functional limitations have been noted to be, through a survey, to be really some of the big barriers to um, activity, especially after a traumatic brain injury. Some other barriers, um, lack of exercise facilities. So I was a little hard pressed to find that for this, I was hoping to have a nice list for this group, but I, um, I was having a hard time finding some local facilities that were really comfortable and accustomed to accepting people um, who, have, who need some assistance. Transportation, so getting places, um, getting to those places, if, if, again, not at home, then somewhere else, um, and how do you get there? Lack of social support, I think anybody can agree that sometimes having that buddy system is really important in having a more a successful um, program. Cost, so everything costs something, and sometimes you have to budget what's important and what you, what you need, um, and this could be an additional cost, so this may not be something that can be done because of cost. Fitness center staff unable to assist, so that kind of ties into the lack of exercise facilities. I think those for strategies, and, and the reoccurring theme is that it's so specific to the person, it's hard to say globally what, every, what will work for everyone, but generally, when you're starting to take on an exercise program, I think the first thing you have to make sure is that you have your, where your medical clearance is for that. So see your physician and talk to your, um, your rehab professional to get you on track for doing um, an, an exercise program. So beyond sort of the physical activity, but really a structured exercise program. Uh, especially since like some of those recommendations were around an aerobic level, so you're really kind of talking to your physician about that. One of the studies I was looking at, which I thought was interesting, was the role of a caregiver, and, we, and that you saw that in that last slide, bar a barrier, it can be um, support. 
is that in a, in a survey of people um, they, who were, where they were trying to figure out some of the barriers and solutions to those barriers, they said that their care, they, they would love for their caregiver to be involved and supportive of an exercise program as a cheerleader, but not as a coach. They did not want them to coach them in that way. They wanted to support them as a cheerleader. Uh, and then monitor your activity. So, you know, it's the, there are lots and lots and lots of ways you can get all kinds of information about yourself. Mo many of our phones have activity monitors. Um, we tried employing this, like, little Fitbit on the, um, our inpatient unit just to kind of get a sense of the patients who are walking around, how many steps they're taking to encourage them maybe with a goal of taking some more steps. But measure your activity. Set goals for yourself or work with a health professional to set those goals. Uh, it's it, again in that survey of ideally what what would be perfect. They're saying maybe something that's waterproof because uh, you know in that one study that we use the Fitbit, sometimes the Fitbit would end up in the wash because <laughs> they're so portable they get lost in our clothing. But um, but they did say things about being practical about it. Make sure it's something that you have on yourself uh, that can also if you're going to be out in the elements or <laughs> doing your laundry with a Fitbit that maybe it's um, waterproof. Um, and then set those goals and, 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 and recognize what those goals are so that you feel hopefully encouraged to keep going. So in summary, physical activity does impact what they call these secondary health conditions. And the secondary health conditions are the things that arise, the, the, the things that arise after something like a traumatic brain injury. Um, it's been shown to have health benefits in people with TBI and that there are ways to maybe help stay um, to get to start an act uh, an exercise program or an activity program um, and one of those ways may be just simply act measuring your activity seeing how many steps you took your phone or Fitbit or something like that and maybe setting goals beyond that to learn more about our research go to kesslerfoundation.org follow us on Facebook Twitter and Instagram listen to us on Apple podcasts Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts.